0: This episode contains strong language and mature subject matter. It may not be suitable for all ears. What up? This is Luce Fleming. You've come to the place where we tell tales of the train and the bus yard, the tenement yard and the prison yard. We detail close calls and chase stories. We dig into larger conversations about crossing boundaries, the other side of the tracks, borders, and forbidden space. Whether to make big life changes, to forward the artistic or professional practice, to escape peril, or just for the sheer thrill of it.
1: I see this fence leading to freedom, and I climbed over it, and then there was another fence. <laughs> I was like, shit!
0: Today, it is a huge honor to have Claudia Gold, aka Claw Money, share some of her amazing and hilarious tales with us. Claw is a world-renowned graffiti writer, fashion designer, and cultural icon. Join us as she shares her accounts of running the streets doing graffiti, nightlife in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, her undying love of fashion, and how all of these things collide to make one of the most influential brands of its kind. Claw and Company is truly a result of crossing boundaries, being crossed out, taking a leap, and emerging on the other side even bigger and stronger than before. So sit back and let Claw Money tell you some of her favorite, yard tales.
1: What up up, everybody, everybody? it's your girl, girl, Claudia Claudia Gold, Gold, AKA. a.k.a. Claw Claw Money money from from TC5, TC5, FC, and PMS PMS Cruise, Cruise. just Just to name a few, few. coming Coming to you live live from from New York York City. City. My mother is from Belgium, her parents packed her and her four siblings up in a car and drove all over Nazi-occupied Europe until they could get on a boat. And I think they were going to go to South America, but my grandfather saw that the boat docked in New York and he had a third cousin there. And I guess he wrote him. And when they docked, His cousin came up and said, like, I'm going to take this family. And they were able to disembark in New York and not have to go on to South America. My mom was six when she got here. And uh, they lived on the Upper West Side. And that was kind of a weirdly rough neighborhood. It's hard to imagine. Even though it was very beautiful, like, Riverside, like, Riverside Drive in the hundreds was, was pretty rough in the you know fifties sixties seventies. I mean, I remember there used to be like pimps and hookers. When I would go visit my grandfather when I was a kid, and I would be like, "Ooh, well, mommy, like look at that man! He has the coolest outfit on!" And she'd be like, "Don't look at him!" <laughs> I'm like I love him. <laughs> My grandmother was born in the Lower East Side. I grew up going to Delancey Street, where my store was, as a child. I would say, like, a couple of times a month, every other week or something. My father always needed something on Delancey Street. But I think it was just an excuse to go to Ratner's, which was a very famous kosher restaurant that had the best pea soup and onion rolls in town or something. Later, it hosted the Lansky Lounge that was kind of popping in the early 2000s. It also had one of the most beautiful sign with all tiny light bulbs that said Ratner's in a script, almost like Pepsi Cola or something. It was had this pink ribbon it was beautiful. I loved going to Ratner's with my dad. But my dad was always like, I got to get socks. We got to go to Delancey Street. But I think there was such a, a tie to that neighborhood because that's where, you know, half of my family came from. But I'm originally from Fresh Meadows, Queens. I moved to Long Island. To go to junior high school. And as soon as I could, I moved into Manhattan at the tender age of 17 to attend college at FIT. I was very interested in fashion. I was like always. Making clothes as a kid, making some crazy outfit out of something, and, you know, when my parents were having a party, and I'd come down, like, in my, like, crazy, and they, ooh, Claudia. And I was very good at fashion illustration. I was like, I'm going to be a fashion illustrator, because those people had jobs. They drew pictures in the newspaper, and... It's very glamorous, and they just, whoo, lots of style, right? Lots of squiggles and suggestions and lines in the face and, you know, crazy hairstyles. You could just dream up anything. I, I really loved it. My father was very down on me. At that time, and was like, I don't even know why I'm sending you to college. You're completely incapable of being responsible. Like, you have to live at home. No, I'm going to get a job. And I moved into the projects on 10th Avenue and 27. It was only for six months. And I moved in. With these two guys and it was like two hundred and thirty two dollars for like the tiniest room that barely fit a twin bed. But after that, my grandfather passed away and I moved into his apartment on one hundred thirteenth and Riverside. And I basically never went to college after that. (laughs) I never went to class after that. I was like, I'm like, I'm good. I'm uptown now. Like, bye. (laughs) My love of fashion didn't ever wane, even when I stopped going to college because I started working. As an intern in college, and those people hired me as an assistant designer. So I immediately sort of was indoctrinated into the schmata business, the like the real commodity garment business. I was an intern at a brand called Fortune Cookies that was owned by Anne Klein which Donna Karen owned. It was this company, uh, Takio, a Japanese company. And Narciso Rodriguez was my boss. It was this like younger Ann Klein fortune cookies. Like it was like trying to be Betsy Johnson, but like Betsy Johnson for the office, kind of. Like it was like an outerwear division. I stayed in this like outerwear. I worked for like two or three different coat companies. One line had fake fur. One line was sort of like sporty, like a Nautica or a polo. Another line was um, this like weird, like color block, like fake ski Obermeyer jackets. At that time, I was writing a lot of graffiti and it was very hard to get to work on time because i was up all night painting and i was expected to come into work at you know 9 30 the latest or something and i would have to drink so much coffee to stay awake that when i was doing these flat sketches you know it's like a picture of a garment really two-dimensional that shows all the details where the pocket is where the zippers are, where the placket is, where the drawstring is, right? And you hand draw all this stuff and you draw all the little stitches, is it, you know, a double needle. My hand would shake <laughs> from the coffee when I was doing these little tiny stitch marks and I was like, oh my God, I have to erase it 95 times. I have to redo it. Like I started like messing up and I got fired for being late And I went to a club that night just being like, you know, let's get fucked up because I don't have a job. And they were like, can you work the coat room? Like, so our girl isn't here. Do you want to make a couple hundred bucks or whatever? And that was that. I was indoctrinated into nightlife culture where I stayed for a long time which was perfectly in sync with my graffiti schedule and let me really experiment and go crazy with fashion behind the bar as my, you know, runway. It was just sort of like the perfect early 20s storm for me. It really, it was good. also bartending and working in this all female bar environment with my sort of like feminist mentors like, who to this day are like my moms and best friends and really created this very like safe space for me throughout entire downtown because I'm a bartender here. This guy's a bartender there. Everybody gets to know each other. So every bar in the East Village was sort of a a secret hideout for me if something was to pop off, which I used very frequently to sort of escape danger. I remember... This yard, an abandoned building, crumbled building that was on 14th and 4th. I guess this is like 93, something like that. This was the first time I ever saw a Shepherd Ferry, like Obey Giant poster. And it was, there was one on the, on the right side of the yard. Anyhow, it had been a terrible winter that year. I was always painting by myself, but I, like, scoped this spot on 14th and 4th. I'm like, that's my spot. I just would walk by it all the time be like, there it is. There's my spot. That's my spot. And it was so out in the open that I really needed to have lookouts on every corner. I needed one on... Broadway. I needed one on 4th Avenue, and I needed one both sides of 14th Street and on the avenues because it was just an entire block of invisible fence. You know what I mean? You could just really see what was going on. And it was a very cold winter. Nobody wanted to paint with me. I had plans to meet both Dante TC5 and Devo KGB because I knew one of them wasn't going to show up that night at midnight on 4th Avenue and 14th Street. And so now it's like 12.30. I'm like, oh, of course they're going to be late. So it's 1 o'clock, it's one thirty, and I'm like, tonight's my night, I have to paint this, I have my paint. Like, I got to do it. And I'm standing there, and these dudes were like, yo, what's up, mommy? And usually I'd just be like... And I was like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) Do you want to look out? And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to paint that wall. Will you guys look out? There were three of them. I was like, you stand there, you stand there, and you watch all the cars that come up Fourth Avenue. And let's have a code word or something, you know, like owl or something. If If it's sketchy, but I want you guys to tell me every time a car comes. I don't care if it's not a cop car. Just tell me, because i got to just, like, be cool. I threw my paint over, and I climbed the fence. So I'm painting, I'm painting, and I'm, like, really going fast, I haven't stopped once I could see lights, but I'm just like why aren't they saying anything? Of course they're not saying anything, they're staring at me painting because they're just like, what the hell is going on? What are we doing here? Like, we're watching and I'm like, you guys come on, like, you gotta let me know so, anyway, I finished fast because they were, they were the worst lookout I also wrote like, burn your bra <laughs> so I was like trying to come in with, like, some 70s, like, feminist (laughs) statements. I'm with these, like, three dudes that I just met that everybody had, like, their, like, hood nickname. They were like, Nut Cisco in polo. And so I, I put them up and, you know, I'm, like, trespassing. I had to climb back over the fence. And I was like, come on, let me, like, take you guys for a drink. And I, when I see pictures of that wall and I just remember that, like, I could just approach like someone on the street, like human to human. It was sort of like opening up like a border of like humanity to me in some way that like I was in this situation and I like asked three strangers for help who could have just been like, nah or give me your pain, or it could have gone south, but it, it didn't. And I always felt like graffiti connected me to the people of New York City in this way where there were no borders at all. But I just felt like so enveloped in love from New York City from the street from the cars from the the weather the these dudes like it was almost as if i had the key to the city borderless entry i used to paint a bubbly style of my name kind of seventh grade girly bubble letters, very junior high school denim notebook with like a bunny next to it and a rainbow or something. So I used to paint this bubbly C-L-A-W. I started putting hearts in the A. And then I started putting the nails on, on the claw. And I was just always doing pieces. Claw, claw. I was... Doing all sorts of crazy pieces with like silver outlines. And back then, you know, we didn't have fancy caps or anything. So (laughs) I have like oversprayed silver outlines. I mean, I was just trying all sorts of wild stuff. And it's funny because probably 10 or 15 years after I was painting like that and I got better, I would look at those photos and I would get a stomach ache and I would just be like, oh, this is just like so embarrassing. And then when I was putting my book together in 2005 and I was looking at them, it was almost like I was on some next-level shit. I was really, like, I had no borders or boundaries. I was just, like, on my own experimental, I'm going to do a silver outline with, like, overspray everywhere and I don't care and it looks great. Uh, when I started painting graffiti, the trains were done. They had put in their full nineteen eighty nine like last graffiti run train. It's it's a wrap, and they're going hard. And the guys that I was being mentored with or friends with that were train riders were just like, "Yo, if you didn't paint trains, you ain't shit." Like, <laughs> so we. Lowly street bombers also wanted to have mobility. So we really started painting all these truck lots. And there used to be big, giant truck lots all over the Lower East Side. There was one on Houston Street, which I believe is a Whole Foods now. That was one of my favorites. And I think that's actually where the claw icon was developed in that actual truck yard that's Whole Foods. Shout out to Jeff Bezos. And there was one on Delancey Street by the Williamsburg Bridge where my store was, which is now some fancy high-rise Essex Street crossing co-op development. I don't know. But those trucks would get around and people would see your stuff, whether it was, you know, uptown or on the west side or you were in a cab. And I feel like... We all knew we got a lot of play out of the trucks. One of those nights, I was in there with this kid, OSHA, O-S-H-A, wherever you are. I hope you're good. Real low key, I guess, this truck saw us when they were opening up the gate. He slowly, like he like drove his truck in, like silently with no lights on, and I was like, "Is something coming?" But because you kind of can't hear. I also used to paint with like a Walkman or something dumb like that because you know I'm in the truckyard. Who's coming to the truckyard at three in the morning?
0: <laughs> Get him!
1: I would say that I was running around for a full 10 minutes and it felt like 12 hours. It was scary because I didn't know what they were gonna do, if they were gonna like grab me and call the cops or they were gonna like beat me up or they were just gonna be like literally shocked. And I see this fence leading to freedom. It was pretty mild, eight foot, really structurally like well-made chain link fence. And I climbed over it, and then there was another fence <laughs> that was like 15 feet high, about five feet behind it that I just didn't even know was there, and I was like, "Shit!" Meanwhile, Osha was in there too, but he had scaled the double fence with ease, like pew pew. And I, I guess he was waiting for me like by a tree or something. And these guys started climbing over the five foot fence and I just went up the 15 foot fence and I'm sitting on the top and I'm like, fuck, can I jump down? Like, oh, I can't. That's not my thing. I'm not good at that. So sitting on top of it, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to jump down. These guys are coming for me. And I jumped. But of course, my pocket got caught on the top of the fence. And. (laughs) And. I just was like, oh, my God. So I was walking around, like, holding it, trying to, like, knot it together. I think I went to the bar that I worked at to have a drink and uh, put some paper towels in my pants and nobody would see my butt. (laughs) Coincidentally, I always started wearing, like, two or three safety pins on my clothes in case that happened. So I could just not be completely indecent. Um, But... I got away, and that was that. And I think I was back at the truck yard the next night.
0: (laughs) What's up, everybody? This is Luce, the producer of Yard Tales. I want to take a minute to ask you for a favor. A show like this takes a lot of time and effort to produce. We're not a big team. It's mostly just me. We don't have any sponsors contributing money or influencing what I make or what I say. This is independent media. If that's something you support, please help me to keep making this show and providing it to you for free by donating to Yard Tales. A single dollar helps. But if even a small percentage of listeners gave the price of one of those 10 pound pastrami sandwiches from Katz's Deli, uh, you get the idea. Just go to yardtales.live slash donate and click on the button that says donate now. That's yardtales.live slash donate. Any amount is really appreciated. Thanks so much. And now let's get back to those truck yards where Claudia's iconic claw badge was born.
1: In those truckyards is where the claw came to be. I'll tell you how the actual claw came to be. So I was writing claw and then I started writing like CW or I was writing C L W and skip the A if it was like a small space, then I started doing CW. And this kid Heck who passed away, R. I P just went into the truckyard. They're like, what the hell is this? And they painted with bucket paint. H-E-C in yellow bucket paint, like humongous. But it was only over like the C-L-A. And so I think I was on like 23rd Street or something and I was talking to someone and I saw the truck and you instantly know what your truck is because you recognize the other graffiti that's on it. I see this truck coming and I'm like, oh my God, there's my truck. I'm like, wait, 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 let's just hang out a second. My truck's coming. And... This truck rolls by, and I see this, like, yellow bucket, H-E-C, over my C-L-A. And the W, which is the claw, but more of a W shape, less paw, I guess, was just sticking out. And I was like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. But then I kind of just, like, looked as the truck was rolling away from me, and I was like there it is. I'm never going to write my name again. So he really actually did me a huge favor in retrospect. But I remember being pissed and being like, I'm going over all little shit. <laughs> so you want to talk about beef? Okay, let's talk about beef. I had beef with somebody who isn't practically isn't even considered a graffiti artist. Chico. (laughs) He was like Walmart, the Walmart version of Tats Crew or something, right? (laughs) But actually, you know, it's funny because Martha Cooper did a book of, um, you know, R.I.P. Walls, and he's got so much stuff in there. And it's actually just so brilliant and amazing. Like, weirdly, now I'm like a huge fan. I think like in the early, you know, in the 80s and 90s. I wasn't such a fan, but he had so much stuff. So in the early 90s, I was painting with Pink a lot, painting freight trains and stuff. And this young woman was coming from Amsterdam to visit Lady Pink, Mickey, Mickey TFP. I'm going to say this is 92. And... I, at the time, was uh, kind of mentoring a young Queen Andrea. She was like a 16-year-old girl, and Pink was like, we got to get an all-girl wall. We've never had an all-girl wall. Let's do an all-girl wall. Yeah, okay. So I'm in the East Village every second. I have learned that... You ask stores for permission to paint the wall. They say no. They close on a Sunday and you paint it. (laughs) You're just like, okay, you're not going to let me paint. I'm just going to paint. And especially as a woman, when I would paint in the daytime, whether it was legal or illegal, and a lot of times stuff that looked legal was completely illegal, I just pretended like it wasn't. I would make a fake note and I would just paint and I would try to use my gift of gab with the cops if they came and say like come on oh no I'm painting a mural for the community like whatever so I saw this huge wall on 11th between B and C that was on this like insane thrift store and it had these like really weird flowers painted on it and tags all over it. And I just would look at that wall constantly and be like, I gotta paint that wall. And I realized the store was closed on, I don't know, Sunday or Monday or whatever day it was closed. I was like, that's our day. So Mickey, Pink, QA, and myself all painted that wall. I have a picture of that too. I think I wrote like females represent or something corny. Um, but it was like a big deal, and it was a big deal to Pink at the time because there had never been like an all woman production wall. And when we're painting the wall, who rolls up a Chico? I had never met him, I just always saw all of his murals. There's the Laundromat mural with the tide and the Ajax, and there's the vet mural with the German Shepherd and the parrot, and there's the, all the R.I.P. walls, and every corner Chico had in the in the East Village, so, um, Alphabet City, like it was just Chico world. And uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, how'd you get this wall?" I was like, "Oh, you know, I asked them if I could paint the wall, whatever." And he was like, "Oh yeah, because I've been trying to get this wall," and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever." A week or two later, I was in this crew, this uh, Alphabet City crew called the Violators. They were like all my little homies. They rang my bell. I was living on 6th Street between 1st and 2nd on uh, the crazy Indian restaurant street. And they're like, yo, Chico's painting over your wall. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, he's painting over your wall. I'm like, what do you mean? So I put a can of spray paint in each of my back pockets of my of my jean shorts and i put on a sweatshirt and i walked over to the wall and i was like talking to these guys and i was like okay you guys can go and they're like no no no, we're not gonna go we're gonna like lurk like just in case something pops off and these kids were they were like so young and so small like they i just was like just go and they're like no no, no we're we're staying so i walk up to the wall and i'm like yo what are you doing and he's like who are you and i'm like i'm claw we met like a couple weeks ago and he's like fuck you bitch you can't come down to the east village and fucking think you own it this is my neighborhood you're not fucking painting here blah 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 and i was like what (laughs) and then all these dudes that I didn't realize we were, like, hanging out, just started, like, kind of closing in on me. And I was like, okay, okay, it's like that. Okay, bye. And I walk away, and these kids come up to me. They're like, it's cool. And I'm like, "Oh, uh! So I called Pink, and I was like, this dude's going over my wall. Needless to say, I won't say who I was with, but I drove around with a bunch of people to all of his walls with a ton of bucket paint in the back of uh, this, I believe it was a wood-paneled station wagon. And I would jump out every corner and take the can and go, bleh! (laughs) And I guess we probably got about like 20 20 pieces in, in one night. And next thing I know, Chico was after me. (laughs) Who knew Chico was so, like, completely, like, deeply embedded in the Lower East Side gang life, where, like, dudes were showing up to my bartending job and pulling guns on, like, the staff there, being like, where the fuck is Claw?" And... He got my number and was leaving me like all sorts of crazy messages like, you owe me 500 cans. I'm going to fuck you up. Right. And then he doesn't get me. I am avoiding my house and being downtown like plague. I'm calling all of my boys that are uptown. I'm like, yo, what's up? You want to hang out? I'm going to totally come uptown. I'll be uptown. I'm, I'm leaving my house now. Whatever. Let's do something. Let's pay. Let's go somewhere. Like, come on. And I guess he called up Pink and said, you know, where's Claw? I'm going to like, I'm going to fuck her up. And I got really mad. And when he called up Pink and said, like, where's Claw? I felt like she should have been like, what do you want Claw for? Maybe I was there. Maybe you have problems with me because that's what I would have done if somebody would have called me beefing about something that I participated in. I wouldn't like play dumb and say, what are you talking about? Oh, she was just mad. I felt like she really like hung me out to dry to take all the heat myself. Not that anybody else needed to claim anything. Anyway, he got me on the phone and I was like, fuck you. 20. I got 20. I'm going to get them all. Don't you fucking threaten me. You owe me 200 cans. How about that motherfucker? Right. And he was like, call the dogs off. Enough. It's done. And I'm like, okay, it's done. But I got this weird reputation of being this like badass bitch because I had to, because my mentor. Like, really didn't look out for me. And as a woman, I just thought there would be no way that she would, like, leave me in a vulnerable situation. And really, that really informed how I began to mentor young women. And... I felt like when it was my turn to be the OG that toy or no toy, I'm going to love the shit out of you and help you no matter what and have your back when you're all by yourself going to work in a crazy neighborhood. Like, I don't know. You should be able to like bank on the fact that I got your back. If you're in my crew or not, like, I don't know. It was an interesting life lesson, but... I'm here for the girls, so I'm here for the girls. I've never told that story then. <laughs> like on a like as a as a real like recorded thing. But yeah, anyway, I got I got had a really like tough reputation in the East Village after that. Like for like Chica was like scared of. <laughs> But that also was weirdly the catalyst to get me into TC5 because I was friends with like Doze and Psycho. I think I told them what happened and they talked to him. Before the the paint throwing happened, he painted a chick, this giant woman with like a huge butt and on her jeans, he wrote Claw as sort of (laughs) like a... You know, like, here, I'm not really going over you. I'm putting you up. like, But it was, like, right on her butt cheek before Juicy Couture. And and I was so mad. I was like, that motherfucker put my name on her butt? Like, (laughs) I wish I had a picture of it. It would be, like, so awesome. I don't think I ever did. But um, the TC5 guys rolled up to the wall and was like, cover that up. She's really pissed. Like, don't do that. And then... I think they saw how like crazy I went on this, and they were. That's when they like put me in the crew. <laughs> Psycho was like, "You're down. You're just. You're just what we're looking for." <laughs> I moved to Los Angeles in 1995 because of beef. <laughs> Really, the cops were after me. We had, like, terrible beef, me and my boyfriend at the time. And I just didn't want to deal. I just wanted, like, I had some friends over in LA and just needed, like, a change of scene. And every the walls just were, like, closing in on me in New York. I just was like, get me out of here. So I called my dear friend, Sophie, a very accomplished costume designer, go look her up, Sophie Durakoff. And I'm like, I need a job. What do I do? And she's like, oh, darling, she's British. Come, be an assistant with me on this shoot. All we'll do is iron clothes and smoke cigarettes. I was like, sounds great. So, we started working for this woman, Jen Pellington. Her husband was a big video director, Mark Pellington. And we started working on this, like, insane Bon Jovi video with I don't know. 600 extras. It was really like an epic job, but we that's all we were doing is steaming clothes and we'd like smoke a million cigarettes. And I was like, this is my shit. This chick is telling everybody what to wear. Like, this is me. Like <laughs> And I started really pursuing styling gigs and assisting styling gigs and I was working like a dog in Los Angeles and I was also bartending because I needed to make money and I was just working like seven days a week, like all day and all night. And I broke up with my boyfriend and it was like, I have to, like, I'm going home, like, why am I here? And I moved back home and I said to myself, I'm going to be a stylist, but I'm not going to assist anybody. That was in the late 90s, where I made this cautious decision to really kind of, like, pursue editorial and all sorts of very creative music video. Like, stuff that really was badly paying, but really um, great creatively. And then I started getting lots and lots of jobs and started really establishing myself as a stylist and costume designer and later fashion editor and fashion director. And I met a young Miss Seventeen. She became my assistant and she kept trying to get me to paint. And I was just completely not into it. I was like, oh, that's for you young kids. Like, go crazy. And she got me out there painting one night. And lo and behold, I had never painted and had, like, an immediate reaction on the internet because there was no internet. (laughs) When I painted, it was all kind of word of mouth. All of a sudden... She's sending me link after link after link. Oh my God, claws back. I'm so excited. Oh, I made my day. I walked out Avenue C, I saw a giant claw. I can't even believe it. All my dreams are coming true. Claws back, claws back. I couldn't even believe how much positivity because I just didn't really associate that with graffiti. Uh, this is like 99, 2000, around then. And she was getting a lot of shit on the internet. A lot of uh, it was like those like horrible like forums and streets are saying things, and it was just like tons of anonymous fake shit talking accounts. And most of the the criticism that was like lobbed against her was that she didn't, she doesn't paint her own shit, right? And I said to myself, what are they going to say? If I paint with her, are they going to be able to say that same like, oh, she doesn't paint her own shit? But that's two she's like what? Because that's what they always say. So I just was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna back this young woman, and we are gonna go painting. And we started painting a lot. So now we're painting a lot. It's 2001. happens, all of a sudden, New York just dries up. There's no jobs. I was also wheeling and dealing vintage. I would buy lots of crazy vintage to use in my styling. I'd wear it out and then I'd sell it. So I had this job and I was like flipping all the stuff to mostly Japanese customers, but to all the good stores, downtown Resurrection, Fully and Karina, but there were like tons of them. And I also was curating all the eyewear in the cool streetwear stores like A Life and Union, Gnome de Guerre, Prohibit. So now all my Japanese customers that were coming in. Every two weeks to buy Snoopy sweatshirts or 70s denim and gunny sacks and Converse and all this stuff that I would just be able to sort of just grab and and go, stop coming. All the production companies that I was doing music videos with and catalogs and commercials stopped shooting in New York and all the jobs moved to California. And I'm just painting graffiti, painting graffiti, painting graffiti. And all of a sudden, there were claws everywhere. Everybody started saying to me within a two-week period, I think like 10 people said to me like, Hey, you should do a claw for my t-shirt line. Oh, hey, you should do a claw for my denim line. Oh, I'm doing this thing. You should, we should do a t-shirt. We should do this. And I went to sleep one night and I woke up. And I was like, I think. I'm going to just make a t-shirt and let's see what happens. That mushroomed into a business within three months where I made this little girl's wife beater with a red and green and yellow claw and a pot leaf on the back that said homegrown New York City. And... The stores were saying, can you make it in black? Can you make it for guys? Can you make it on gray? Can, and I made that shirt in like a million different iterations before I was like, oh, I need to come up with some other designs. <laughs> and boom, claw Money was born. Really out of the ashes of 9-11 and out of me not having work. And from that... I was still painting tons of illegal graffiti and it was like, you know, an advertising campaign that I was just going crazy supporting my super exclusive, you know, t-shirt and sweatshirt brand. And then, of course, it became a real job and we expanded into eyewear and outerwear and sneakers and lots of, um, You know, legendary co-brands and things that have really changed the landscape for women in fashion, not just in graffiti.
0: Thanks so much for sharing your tales with us today, Claudia. Persistence and perseverance truly does pay off. Keep doing you. The interview for this episode of Yard Tales took place on the traditional territory of the Lenape Nation, or Alphabet City, Manhattan. I recorded and produced the rest of this podcast on the unceded territory of the Squamish, tsleil and Musqueam Nations, Vancouver, BC. Thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to check Claw Money out at ClawAndCo.com, on Instagram at ClawMoney, and be sure to check out her amazing book Bombshell: The Life and Crimes of Claw Money. Yard Tales is executive produced by Jacob Bronstein. Andy Outis is the design director. Production assistance by Davis Lloyd. Original music and sound design by myself, James Ash, Serjato Jarrett. Names You Can Trust, Greenwood Rhythm Coalition, Midnight Lab Band one man aka internet provider monk one and easy shout out to andy cotton for the dope theme music thanks for letting me put a little remix on it for this show if you like yard tales be sure to follow on apple spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts and please use apple podcasts to rate and review yard tales because it really helps point more listeners to the show you can find more information, images, and additional audio at yardtails.live. And check us out on Instagram at YardTales and Facebook at Podcast. If you want to leave feedback or reach out for any reason, send an email to info at YardTales.live. Be sure to listen to the end of each episode where we feature audience members' own call in yardtails. And be sure to tune in next week when Chris Freedom Pape tells his own inner city spelunking yardtails. Sure enough, just as it was told, there was a plank of wood there, and there was a blown out hole in it, and you slide down to this embankment that, you know, was just dirt and rats and stuff like that, and then you'd have like a six-foot drop down to the train tracks eventually, and then there they were, five tracks across, and, and freight trains and stuff like that. It was exhilarating. And if you're still listening, that means you might have had a real connection to Yard Tales. And maybe you have a Yard Tale of your own that you want to tell. If so, go to yardtales.live slash for detailed instructions on how to do so. If we dig your story, we'll feature it in a future episode. And now, we'll let Arrow 77 take us out with his own call-in yard tale.
2: I write Arrow, A-R-O-E, Arrow 77. The crews I'm down with are SBF, ROF, Renegades of Funk, X-Men, Flow Crew. I'm also down with DBS Crew, PI Crew, FMR, and PMS. I was with my boy Issue, I-S-U-E so there was used to be this really good freight spot that we would hit all the time never had a problem on a reservation san domingo in uh new mexico a little south of santa fe and uh it had a little platform the platform wasn't very big i would say maybe 50 feet long something like that and um so this day there it happened to be pulled up right there and it was like a I guess sometimes like there was maybe half a car or something. It never really worked out, but the car was like perfectly lined up with this, you know, small platform where, you know, the platform extended for the whole car almost. So it was just, it was perfect for us that day. The The freights are usually a little bit high. We uh, we usually would, you know, bring out a crate or something because these, these freights weren't boxcars. So they weren't as low po- boxcars were usually a little lower. So these were a little bit higher. We usually brought something to stand on so we could do a, a a nice like bigger piece on them and, you know, get like at least halfway of the car. But with the platform, the platform is about four feet high. It went right up to the bottom of these freights and it was perfect, you know, so we were super psyched because we could just reach up and cover almost the whole surface of the the side of the train. So we were doing basically top to bottoms where the letters go from the bottom to the top. And uh between the two of us we pretty much had the car filled up. This day it had lined up perfect and we were we were probably painting for two hours before anything happened. We were almost done. I think I was maybe like outlining some clouds or something. You know, we had the outlines done. But uh, you know, we're finishing up, we're hanging out, we got all our paint, you know, we're smoking Chiba too. <laughs> Train was coming out great. You know, I remember very well it was it was the sun was setting and you know it was just like those beautiful colors that you get that beautiful fade in the sky, you know, no clouds, just orange to yellow to blue, or you know. If you're ever in New Mexico, you you know these these beautiful uh sunsets. So I have a bad left ear, so I usually paint on the left side, which I was painting on the left side. So my boy, who had great ears and hawk eyes, he was, he was there. And so I'm sure he heard it first. And we kind of like, you know, guard our stuff and get, you know, kind of tuck back a little bit, see what's going on, step away from the train. And we hear these guys like freeze these, you know, plane clothes guys, basically on top of the trains running towards us guns drawn. And we're like, oh shit, time to dip. Like, you know. We start freaking out. They have their guns drawn. They're running on the top of the train coming toward us pretty quick. And what I really remember when I, when I see it in my mind's eye is like I can still kind of see the guy's face. He was a Native American guy, short hair, looked like a cop. And, you know, graffiti writers, you don't freeze, you run. <laughs> so we dip behind us into this old factory, this abandoned factory. We stash our paint. We figure they've got to be on their tail, right? We're looking around while we're stashing our paint. They're not right behind us, which was strange because it felt like they were right on top of us when they were coming at us. We stash our paint. We run out, you know, an open doorway in this abandoned building, and there's a fence. This this whole area is fenced in. There's a fence. We look down the road. We figure this probably... Cops parked on the road, like looking for us, and uh, we don't see anything. We don't. We're like, yo, this is crazy. Like, I, I guess maybe they thought we were going a different way or something. But we're looking at each other. We're freaking out. We're like, what should we do? We're like, all right, well, let's let's just dip, and uh, we jump the fence. We run across the road. This is the only road coming in or out. We just ran out into the middle of nature and into these hills like across this little arroyo and I actually remember there was there was some water that we had to run through, which is rare because, you know, in New Mexico there's these arroyos, these dry riverbeds are usually dry. <laughs> and I remember we had to go through a little bit of water and then hoofing it up these hills and the wilderness, middle of nowhere, you know. We we keep, you know, going, going, going. We're not looking back. We're just like, you know, fuck it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Freaking out. So eventually we get on top of this like big hill. We're kind of like looking back down over everything. We see tons of cop cars, tons of sirens, but you know, we don't feel anybody chasing us. We don't see anybody coming up. So it starts to get dark. And we start seeing like all the lights flashing from the road, they're hanging out. They're obviously like searching for us or something. There's a bunch of cops looking for us. Meanwhile, my car, I had driven, I'm parked in this like dipped out spot kind of near the abandoned building. And I'm like, fuck, uh, my car's right there. They're probably going to see the car, figure something out. I don't know, get the license plate, blah, 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 run the place, blah, blah, blah. So we call our boy Pesky, who's in our crew SBF. And we tell him what's going on. we're like, yo, we need a a ride. And, And we're trying to figure out how we can link up with him because we're in the middle of these hills. So we're like, well, we can go down to the road, you know, this type of area by the road, you know, if you go this direction. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's like pitch black. So we we make our way, and this is this is pretty far. We, we've probably hiked about mile, two miles at this point out from where we were. Then we got maybe like another half mile to go to the road where we're trying to meet my boy. So we get down there cars go by every once in a while this is like you know pretty deserted area we see cars we know what his car looks like but it's hard to tell in the dark we don't want to be seen by a cop so we're like hedging our bets trying to trying to think uh should we make ourselves seen by this car no 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 <laughs> but luckily my friend like he was driving slow and i don't know you know i guess Maybe it was all the years of like painting together and knowing each other. You kind of have this, maybe this connection that's unexplainable. (laughs) So he was, I remember seeing his lights go down. We're like, is that him? Like, you know, the brake lights come on and we're like, is that him? We're like, yeah, I think it is. And just like, you know, running to the car, getting in like, okay, let's go. go." (laughs) But that wasn't the end of that spot. We we still painted there, which was funny because uh, actually... We let it die down for a while, but we went back to that spot like, oh, let's go see if our paint is still there. Sure enough, got all our paint back. Our bags were still there. And we had stashed our weed in a pipe somewhere else, like in another little spot in that abandoned warehouse. And that was still there too. And we're just like, how did we get out of this? (laughs) But we were a little more careful from, from then on, but... I think that was the beginning and the end for that spot too.